0: If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, we'll be taking a look at some verses in Ephesians 4 for reasons I'll tell you about in just a bit. So come on in, find a seat, turn to Ephesians 4. And while you're doing all of that, let me remind you of some things that are coming up. Immediately following our services, immediately following this hour at noon, we're going to have a lunch sponsored by our high impact teen ministry they are going to camp in july they've been doing a number of things to try to raise funds for camp and one of those is this lunch so they have a mexican lunch we did this last year for the camp they actually provided quite a good lunch uh... and don't be afraid their parents are helping them out so it's not just the teens making these concoctions okay so it turned out well last year i'm sure this year will not be an exception and you'll be helping them. So if you can uh, hang around for and have your lunch here and enjoy the fellowship. And the suggested donation is $5 a person and $20 maximum per family. So if you have more than five in your family, you're really paying for for more than four. You're paying only for four, uh, $20. And then if you have six or eight or ten, then you're, you've covered them all with that $20, all right? So that's immediately following our service this Tuesday at 10 a.m. at the Civic uh, Park on Hall Road in Woodhaven. That's between West and Van Horn. All moms and their little ones are invited for the monthly Moms and Tots Day Out. So that's Tuesday at 10. And then at the end of this month, the 27th through the 29th, that's Friday through Sunday, is the Trenton Summer Festival. And we are encouraging anybody who can help us man or woman the booth that we're going to have there to sign up for a two hour slot during those three days to help us with that. We have a sheet for that at the Information Center. So before you leave today, if you could do that, that would be great. Uh, We're amassing a list of folks uh, to volunteer for that. But we want to give out information about the church, uh, particularly inviting to our grand opening, which is going to happen in mid-July. And so that's the next thing I remind you of. Just mark on your calendars July the 12th, Saturday the 12th, and then Sunday the 13th. That is our grand opening. So even though we have been in here over a year with a two-month hiatus in the midst of it when we were kicked out of here in January and February as they were adding this part of the building on. Uh, But we've been in here about 15 months, uh, I guess, total now. Uh, But we haven't had a grand opening to the community to invite them in. And that's because we've been trying to finish things up outside uh, before we do that. And we are hoping by the end of this month, first week of July that'll all be buttoned up. So we have planned July 12 and 13 as our grand opening. So kind of a festive day on uh, uh, Saturday the 12th. And then on Sunday, our services will be devoted to uh, letting those who come know who we are, what we're about. Uh, It's called Introducing Community Bible Church. And then uh, the end of July, July 27th, is our next baptism. If you've never been baptized, uh... and you are a follower of jesus then that's part of following jesus is to be baptized we have scheduled the next baptism then for five in the afternoon on sunday july the twenty seventh and if you don't know whether you've been baptized the way the bible says the way the bible teaches that is you got completely wet that's the idea uh... and uh... you go completely under the water i i do these here i put you completely under the water and if i like you i bring you back out of the water (laughs) That's the resurrection part, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's symbolizing death, burial, and resurrection. But that's the point of the immersion being completely wet is to symbolize that. And so if that has not happened with you, then you have not been baptized as the uh, new testament describes and so you need to be so see me about that if you don't know what the qualifications are for being baptized that's what we're here for to help you with that so see me before you leave today we'll set a time to get together but that's our next baptism july 27th. last item is in august uh, sunday august the tenth sunday night august the tenth begins our five nights of vacation bible school here and if you were not at the volunteer meeting two weeks ago for that Uh, then you can still volunteer, and there's all kinds of stuff to do, both uh, visible and behind-the-scenes support kinds of ministries to do. So there's something for everybody. If you can help with that, if you'd like to know whether there's something you can help with, uh, turn in your name at the Information Center. All right, for the last several weeks, we have been going through a series uh, on, for lack of a better term, church philosophy. Now, before you tune me out completely, because that sounds completely boring, uh, let me tell you what that is. It is trying to apply wisdom to the life of the church and the way we go about what we do at the church. And the phrase church philosophy then speaks to that because philosophy means love of wisdom. And as you talk about philosophy of ministry or church philosophy then, you are talking about the application of knowledge, that's what wisdom is, to the particular issue of uh, the church and how we do church. And that knowledge has to come to us, I trust you all agree, from God's Word. Uh, Church is God's idea. Church is given to us in Scripture. And then those who comprise the church and the objectives of the church are given to us in Scripture. So we have that knowledge, but wisdom has to apply that knowledge. And in church philosophy, that's what we seek to do. So going back several weeks ago, we began to look at some important issues related to understanding how a church is to go about what it does. The reason that we're doing that at this point in the life of our church is because God in His providence has brought us to this place. He has allowed us very early on to begin expanding this place as uh, as was finished in early March of this year. And now a grand opening coming up in uh, July to invite the community in. And it's very important for us at this uh, pivotal juncture in the life of our church for us to remind ourselves as to what we're about And so I've taken several weeks to do that. And one aspect of church philosophy that I've uh, really emphasized is that the church is, by its very definition, a called-out people. And ecclesia means that, the called-out ones, and that has then uh, application to how we go about church. We just finished, in the prior hour, our worship service. And the worship service is designed for believers. Believers. It's designed for people who are called out of the world and to God, who already know Jesus. Now, we're happy to accommodate. We're happy, thrilled to have people in our services, any of them, who don't know Jesus in hopes that they will come to know him. And that's why I often give an invitation at the end of the service. But the service itself is designed for believers, and here's why. It's only those called out ones, those believers, who can worship. By definition, an unbeliever cannot worship. And so what many of our churches are doing and have been doing for a few decades now, transforming, in effect, the worship service into something that is designed to accommodate those who can't do it is a really bad idea. So we don't do that here. We have other ways, then, to reach those who are unreached. But that then raises a question. If the church is these called-out ones and separate ones and holy ones, the Bible calls us saints even doesn't have to mean holier than thou or any of that, but that's what the Bible's terminology is. If if the church is separate from the world by its very definition and in the description of it that's given in Scripture, if all that's true, and it is, then how does the church relate to the world? And I've given a number of ways for the church to appropriately relate to those who don't yet know Jesus because we want to invite people to know Jesus and we want them to become a part of the church. And I mentioned things like we have common uh, grace issues. And I explained that common grace is God's grace given to believer and unbeliever alike. And in God's common grace, unbelievers do and wrestle with some of the same things that that we do. So even in unbelief and even outside of the family of God, there are unbelievers who have, by God's grace, living off of the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. Even an unbeliever can stay married to his or her spouse and desire to raise their, their children in a, in a moral environment. Well, that's, that's, that's all part of common, God's common grace. And we can relate to, then, unbelievers on the basis of those common grace issues. And we can even offer series here that deal with those issues, but then go deeper and point people to the God who gave us family and who gave us parenting and, and marriage and, and so on. So there are those common grace issues. And then a second area in which we can and should relate to the world is in the area of sin struggle. The truth is, people in the world struggle with sin, and you struggle with sin, and I struggle with sin, and we need to, far from being holier than thou, we need to be people who are very very willing to admit that we struggle with sin. And we are not where we should be, but by God's grace, we're not where we were, is, is the idea of our testimony, Allah, the first hour today. So we can relate on common grace issues. We can relate on common sin struggle kinds of issues. And we can and should and will as a church be engaged in mercy ministry as well. Simply showing the love of Christ to people by using this facility and the resources that God has given us to show the love of Christ by giving a cold cup of water, as it were, in Jesus' name. Helping people with the needs that they have so that they see, not only hear, the love of Christ from us. So church philosophy means understanding what the church is and how the church relates to the world. And even though the church is a called-out group of people and that should affect then the way we go about what we do, it doesn't mean we're isolated from the world and we can relate to the world at least in those categories that I've talked about and have ministries all over the place for that very, very kind of thing. And that's what we want to do here. Now, we then transitioned a couple of weeks ago to say, all right, that's from a corporate congregational standpoint. We together... Having common grace and having uh, sin struggle kinds of issues and mercy ministries that we can have series and counseling and helps for people with, but then what about you and me on a individual personal level, going out each Lord's day and going into the workaday world and going into our neighborhoods and families, and being light in darkness, and engaging in personal witness. How do we how do we go about that? And so the last few weeks, we have been looking at that issue, our own personal witness, in order to be effective as a church in reaching this community and beyond. And uh, the Moms and Tots thing is happening this, uh, this Tuesday, apparently. <clears throat> hey, guys. And for those of you that have your cell phone on, <laughs> just ignore that. And this is Community Bible Church. Welcome, everyone. To, uh... <laughs> As we look at this issue of personal evangelism, your individual evangelism and mine, a couple of weeks ago I said that contrary to what many of us have been taught, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to giving the gospel. Some of us have been taught a kind of rote approach to giving the gospel, and I'm not dismissing all of that. It may sound like I am, and I don't mean to do that because those can be very helpful. You memorize some passages of Scripture that show people sin, show people the work of Christ and the person of Christ and the gift of eternal life and so on, and that's a very good thing. So I don't mean to dismiss that at all. But you don't want to, none of us want to come off as a salesman trying to simply make our pitch when we, when we talk to people. And more important, as you see Jesus and the encounters that he had in the New Testament, you don't find him doing that. In fact, you find him addressing and emphasizing particular aspects of the gospel based upon where the individual he's speaking with is coming from. And I made the case that there are really two broad categories of people who are outside the church, who are, who are still in their sin, who need the Savior, but two broad categories. One is the religious sinner. That is the person who may go to church. They may have been baptized, they may do all of the rites and rituals associated with their church, but that doesn't give them a relationship with God. And yet they think they're okay with God because they're a good moral person and beyond that a religious person. And Jesus encountered people like that. We saw one in Luke chapter 18 in the rich young ruler who believed that he was good enough to do some good thing to merit eternal life. And Jesus, in quick order, let him know there's none good but God. And therefore, you you need to be disabused of the notion that you're good enough. He thought he had kept all of the commandments. Jesus showed him that indeed he had not. And you'll encounter people like that. Nicodemus is another example of that. Here's a man who was a prominent religious leader, but Jesus said to him, you personally, Nicodemus, must be born again. So your religiosity is not going to give you a relationship with God. So there's the religious center, and then there's the irreligious center. And so this is the person who is simply going about his or her life without regard to God. And their life shows the the effects of that and the things that they do and engage in and so on. And Jesus encountered people like that. John chapter 4, he encounters a woman at the well. And she has had four husbands, and the one she is with now is not her husband. And he gently confronts her with that. But he emphasizes a particular aspect of the gospel for her because her sin has manifested itself in that way. And then last week, we began to then tease that out still further. The fact that you've got these two categories of sin, religious and irreligious, but uh, I made the point last week that you also have different, for lack of a better term, personalities of sin personalities of sin. What I mean by by that is this, that individuals manifest their sin in different ways because they have different pensions, they have different personalities. They're wired, we're wired differently. And so think of it this way, all of humanity is made in the image of God. That is, we were made to reflect God. God. And uh, we were made to reflect God in the way that we think and the way we talk and the way we act. When God looks at humanity, He made us to look at us and see a mirror reflection of Himself. But sin has marred the mirror, it's distorted the mirror. And that reflection is then that moral reflection, where to think and act and, uh, and talk like God, it's been distorted, but it's also a personal reflection because God is a person and He made humanity alone amongst creation. In his image, and part of that is that we have a personal resemblance to God, not just a moral resemblance. That is, unlike the animals, we have these three faculties, these three capabilities. We can think, uh, we have an intellectual capacity, we can act, we have a volitional capacity, and we can feel, we have an emotional capacity. So thinking and acting and feeling, intellectual, volitional, and emotional. That's what makes us persons, and God has all of those qualities as well because he is a person too. So when I say now, sin manifests itself differently depending on your personality, different people will manifest their sin emphasizing one of those three things. Their intellect, their actions, or their feelings. Now, all of the person is involved in that the whole person, mind, will, and emotion. But particular people will manifest their sin generally in uh, one of those categories, primarily over the others. And last week, we began to look at people who engage in intellectual sin. They sin in the way they think about God and in the way they think about themselves and in the way they think about others. We saw that from Romans chapter 1. And I said to you over the next few weeks, I want to look at examples of how people that we're trying to reach with the gospel manifest their need for the gospel because of their sin in the way they think, in the way they act, in the way they emote, in the way they feel. But I decided this week that I want to do an excursus related to that. And I just use the word excursus because I like to say excursus every now and then. I have no idea what it means, but I just saw it one day. But really, an excursion, but related to what we're doing on that. And then we will come back to looking at people who are outside of Christ and how they manifest their sin intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally, and how that can then be plugged into the way we go about presenting the gospel to folks. But here's what I'd like to do today and maybe next week. You know, it's one thing for us to talk about those we come in contact with that we're trying to see come to Christ and see rescued by his grace, saved by his grace, and analyze where they are and what their problems are. But it's another thing for us to remember that we still have those problems too. If God's grace is operative in our lives and we're growing in him, we don't have them to the same degree. We're not what we were. But we still struggle with those things, most of us, still struggle with the things that we were struggling with that were characteristic of our particular kind of sin before we came to Jesus. And so it would be really good for us to take some time to think about how we do that. It would be good for you and good for me for us to think about how, even today, after you have been with Jesus for many years, perhaps decades you still find yourself struggling with some of the same characteristic sins that you have had for years. Now, I see a lot of heads nodding. And I see a lot of couples in this room, and I know what that means. You're nodding because you're sure your spouse needs to hear this. And you're laughing because I just nailed you, didn't I? But, you know, I wonder how many of us have ever thought about what I've been just said. Have ever thought about the fact that I came to Christ and I had particular struggles. And, you know, those struggles in their manifestation and the way you see them have diminished. Perhaps for, for some, you've, you've gained almost what appears to be absolute victory. Praise God for that over some things. And that's certainly possible. But for many of us, we still have those kind of characteristic sins. And perhaps depending on how long we had habituated ourselves to those kinds of sins. I use that word habituated. It has become habit for us to sin in particular ways. Then you come to Jesus and you still have that habit with you. That thinking habit, that doing habit, that feeling habit. And so let's think about that, how that affects us with an eye toward the goal of it helping each of us, but then also helping us in our witness to those who are going to manifest sin in particular ways. Now we can identify with that a bit better the more we've analyzed the way this has affected us as well. So I'm making the case, and I'm going to show it to you from Ephesians 4 in a moment, that typically we carry over into our new life with Christ struggles that we had in our old life. And they are characteristic of us, sometimes habitual for us. And why do I have a particular or particular struggles, and you have different struggle or struggles? Why is that? Well, as I've said, we are, one, different personalities. And so some of us are more intellectually oriented or or action-oriented, or feeling-oriented. Action or feeling You've got people who are just very sensitive, right? Very, uh, I'm not. I mean, and this, I'm not. My wife is. And I can see it when someone is hurt. She, I can see it on her face. She, is, she physically feels it. Kim is very feeling-oriented. And that's one of the great gifts that she has But it can also be a struggle because you're feeling everybody's pain. I don't feel the same way she does. And that actually helps me in my ministry. Because I see a lot of pain. And if I felt every one of those pains, God knows I would not be able to. So I try to sympathize, but she just naturally does that. And so we're all different that way. So that's why we have different kinds of, that's one reason. By nature, we are a particular way. But here's another reason. The reason you have characteristic sinful struggles that are different than mine and vice versa is not only because of our nature, but also because of what? Our nurture. That is, you grew up in a different environment than I did, and you saw stuff modeled before you that I didn't, and I had stuff modeled before me that you didn't. You learned some of your behavior that became habit for you, and you couple that then with your personality type, and it becomes your characteristic profile of sin struggle. So if you grew up in a home where, <laughs> so where people yelled all the time, it was just loud all the time, and then you get married. Well, do you, does everybody who grew up in a home like that marry somebody who also grew up in a home like that? No. No. So my wife and I, I still remember the first time she went to my home. Some of you know my background. I won't bore you all with it. But I had an interesting, let's say, background. My family was fairly colorful. Lots of characters in my family. Lots of, lots of jail time. Lots of substance. abuse I mean, lots of stuff. And Kim uh, didn't have that, to put it mildly. Uh, Kim's mom and dad mom and dad are here members of our church six children all saved serving the Lord never had any of this stuff so I meet Kim and I call it when I took her to my house uh, Ozzie and Harriet meet the Adams family okay <laughs> and the poor girl is learning and I'm, she's saying now who's married to who here and I said no they used to be married that's two marriages removed they, these guys and whose kids are they and, who? and we're trying to, she's trying to put it all together So it was a big eye-opening experience for her. So when we did get married, 14 months after our first date, Kim had determined that there were some just basic rules she needed to lay down for me. And to this day, I still call them Kim's rules. So she she tells me this in the first, like, month we're married. Um, We don't say stupid. I go, oh, we don't? That's right, no, we don't. We want to lay that down. We're Lord willing, we're going to have kids someday, and we don't say stupid. We don't yell. We don't raise our voices. And you know Kim, you know how sweet she is and how soft-spoken she is and all that. But she she laid that in. So I'm the soft-spoken person I've become because of her her influence on on me. But she went through that, and these were all these were all good things. And thankfully, I saw the wisdom in that, and we've we've tried to apply that. But. You're putting two people together who have different nurturing, different environmental, different kinds of experiences, right? You've got different ones than I do, and you've seen different things modeled in front of you than than I have. And you put those together, your personality, your nature, your environment, your nurture, and they'll comprise the particular kinds of struggles you have. So people were yelling and all of that, let's say. But, But what if you had this? What if you had in your home uh, a mom and dad who went to church regularly? In fact, were very involved, served, deacon, treasurer, very important positions, faithfully did so. And yet when you were at home, they talked about people. They gossiped about people. Now, these are church folk. These are saved folk. They, They profess you, but this is what they do. Or what if those same people manipulate and deceive? You say, is that possible? Believe me. I've seen, I've, heard tes- I've seen it. I've heard testimony from folks. Years ago, nobody here. I had a guy. Grew up in church his whole life. And this guy was running into difficulties with his wife, and I was giving him counsel. But part of the reason he was running into difficulties was because the guy would lie. And the guy had professed salvation for all these years, and he he lies. And I go, where did you learn? He goes, oh, my family lies all the time. We lie about everything. His family are prominent members of a Baptist church in another city. But this was a way of life for them. Now, if you grow up with that, it's quite possible you're going to acquire that as a way of going about your relationships, right? And it's going to be a struggle that you have. Or, what if you saw in your home folks who were people-pleasers? And what that means is, people-pleasing takes a lot of forms. Proverbs 29 and verse 25, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, says this, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. And what people-pleasing is, is just that. It's the fear of man. The word fear in the Old Testament is a word for reverence. Reverencing, revering man, humanity, more than you revere God. The fear of the Lord, the reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. But the reverence of man will prove to be a snare. And so that reverence, that inordinate reverence for other people causes us to succumb to peer pressure and people pleasing. And what if you grew up in a home where that was a characteristic sin? Fear of man. And so people try to please others by saying the right thing in front of them, um, by being often one thing in front of them and something else when not. What if you grew up in an environment where it was a critical environment? That is, you heard criticism leveled at you, leveled about others. You learned from that, modeled in front of you, you learned that it's okay for you to think about people in condescending ways. I can sit or stand, I can be in a group of people and I or in traffic or at work or anywhere, and in the recesses of my mind, I can be thinking all the time criticisms about everybody else. And what qualifies me for this? Because I'm me. And I learned it. Critical. What if you had modeled before you worrying? Something comes up. We don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow, next week, next month. So do we depend on the Lord? Do we trust in the Lord? Do we believe in His sovereignty? Are we content in any and every situation, Philippians four, Allah the great apostle? Or do we worry and do we speak our worry? And we wig out as we do that. In front of the kids, in front we learn that. So all kinds of things that you could see modeled before you that you will carry with you as a struggle through life. That's part of your nature, part of your environment. And then there's your particular personality. Now I had you turn to Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, it's structured in a way to deal with categories of what I just described. Things that, things that people bring in with them to the, to the new life. But they brought with them from the old life. Ephesians chapter 4 is this. Verse 1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then. When it says then or therefore, connecting what's going to follow from chapter 4 with what has preceded in chapters 1 through 3. So Ephesians has six chapters. And it is divided into two major sections, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And verse 1 of chapter 4 is now a transition to the second part, that second category, which is about this. Living in a way that's consistent with the identity that you have in Christ. That's what Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are about. And that identity you have in Christ was described marvelously, I mean absolutely marvelously in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so in that, those chapters, you discovered that you have been adopted into the family of God by virtue of God's eternal decree, chapter 1. And as a result of that, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That it is guaranteed that what God has begun in eternity past, he will finish. You're told that. You're told that you were dead, chapter 2, in your trespasses and sins. But at a point in time, God made this decree from eternity past effectual in, in time by at a point in time, having his spirit move upon you and make you alive by his mercy. So that as a result, you're no longer dead in sin and you are now enabled to hear the gospel with new ears and to receive it with a new heart. And that's why it says in that chapter, famously in verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. And you learn in verse 10 of chapter 2 that you have been uh, appointed by God in advance for good works to use your gifts and abilities. For now the glory of God and not for yourself. The latter part of chapter 2, you're taught that the wall of hostility between the law and the gospel, between Jew and Gentile, have been broken down by the cross of Christ. And as a result of that, in this new thing now called the church, there is every manner of person from all walks of life, and they are all one in Christ. One man in Christ. And then in chapter 3... He extols the beauty of the wisdom of this thing called the church that God has ordained. In verse ten of Ephesians chapter three, he says his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And you come to the very end of those three chapters. Chapter or verse twenty-one of chapter three says, "To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, forever." So by the time you get done with that, you ought to be feeling really good if you're in Jesus. I'm in his family. I've been adopted into his family. And I'm, by God's guarantee, I'm going to make it home. And his spirit has moved on me and is with me so that I am now alive spiritually, no longer dead in my sins. And I'm part of this thing where the action is in God's world called the church where God is carrying out his work, and I get to play a part in that. I mean, by the time you get done with this, man, you ought to be feeling really good about yourself. And then you come to chapter 4, and now Paul is saying, now here's how somebody who is identified as all of that is to live. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, to live a life, chapter 4 and verse 1, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And the next three chapters are going to be all about what that kind of life looks like. Now, if you'll go down to verse 22 then in chapter 4. As part of this instruction now, about what you were and now what you are. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Now let me just stop there. So notice, you're taught to put off. But you have to continually be putting off. This is not a one time I put it off. I have to. Con- that's why he's writing it. That you have to, and it's memorialized for us in the pages of Scripture. Because there's a continual putting off of the former way of life, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Let me just stop there. Your personality is your mind, your will, and your emotion. And I've said that there are different personality types that emphasize one more than the other. But no matter what, everything flows from how you think. As a man, the Bible says, thinks in his heart, you remember? So is he. So you may not be someone who emphasizes the intellect, but nonetheless, your words and your actions flow from how you think. And that's what verse 23 is saying. You have to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. All right. Chapters 1 through 3, this is what I am. This is my marvelous identity in Christ. I am a member of this thing called the church through which God is carrying out his work in his world. And Now I am being called to live in light of that identity. And what does living in light of that look like? practical, boots on the ground, what does it look like? And verse 25 says, therefore. So if that's what you're supposed to be doing, therefore, then here's the way it looks. And here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice over the next few verses how the putting off and the putting on takes something that you used to do and replaces it with something that is characteristic of the new self, the new life. Replaces it. So verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood. Now what if he just put a period there? If you're somebody who has a particular struggle with falsehood, and maybe you pick that up because that's the kind of environment you grew up in. That's your particular struggle that you're bringing into this thing. But if he puts a period there and just says, stop lying, but he doesn't. It's not just put off falsehood but positively speak truthfully. Why? Because, back to verse um, 24, you're to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, created to be like God. Now look, friends, you could go all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible as you were created and what you were created to be and now in Christ what you're being recreated to be but going all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible you as a human being made in the image of God were given the capacity to speak and unless there's a a disability or something that's what all human beings have this ability to communicate this marvelous gift from God To use words for good. And yet sin distorts. I was created and now I'm being recreated to be like God in righteousness and in holiness. And that includes now the way I was made to use my communication skills for good. And so it's not enough to just put off falsehood. I must positively now speak truth. Let me put it to you this way. Avoiding sin friends is not enough it is not enough for us to simply stop doing bad things. God has called us to start doing right things, good things. So, y'all know the golden rule? Do to others what you would have them do to you. That's Jesus rule. I don't know if everyone's familiar with the so-called silver rule. The silver rule was something laid down by a Chinese philosopher named Confucius. And just as an aside, I've had the chance to go to China a couple times. Hal and Carol have been in China for eight years. But I was teaching the guys there, and I brought up the silver rule thing by Confucius. And I've done that a number of times in different settings over the years, but I've never had anything happen like this. One of the students raised his hand and said, Confucius is from my hometown. <laughs> wow, I want this guy's autograph. I mean, I just, this really felt special. But anyway, Confucius lived hundreds of years before Jesus. And he laid down this rule. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Hmm. So Jesus is copying off Confucius? Well, not not quite. Not only not quite, not at all. Because remember what Jesus said. It's not do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. It is positively you do to others what you would have them to do to you. So now righteousness with your tongue, according to Scripture, is not the crazy advice that we give to each other. Well, bite your tongue. It's not what you don't say. It's what you use your mouth to say. It's not just thinking bad thoughts about people, wanting to give people a piece of your mind, but biting your tongue. It's not that. It's being made new in the attitude of your mind so that you now think differently and so that the words that now come to your tongue are different words and words that build up rather than tear down. Words that are true rather than false. And with every one of these things, that's what Paul does. He goes through and he says, if your your old life was speaking falsely, that's got to be replaced with truthfully. But that's going to be a characteristic struggle for you. And then he says in verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. But it doesn't just leave it at that. Now, in your anger, do not sin. All right, real quick. Is it possible to be angry and not sin? The answer to that is yes. God is angry and God never sins. God is angry with sinners. God is angry at sin. And so to be angry at sin is not sinful. So it's possible to be righteously indignant. Jesus was that when he overturned the tables and the money changers in the temple. And so it's possible for us, although because of our sin improbable for us. Usually when we're angry, it's because something happened to us, we don't like it, and we're angry. So when it says, in your anger, do not sin, there's the possibility that you can sin without, or be angry without sinning. But then goes on to say, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, when it says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, that's a reference to what's called a nighttime psalm, psalm number 8 in your Bible, a nighttime psalm. And the idea was this is to be read and done at the end of, end, of, end of the day. And the idea here is this is what you do. If you're angry about something, you keep short accounts and you settle it before you go to bed. as a very good practice. And it's something positively you do. It's not just now stuff you don't do. It's what you, it's what you do. Likewise, in verse 28, who was, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. Again, notice it doesn't just say, stop stealing. But it goes on to say, but must work, doing something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So here's your homework assignment. We've got to quit. What I'll ask you to do is identify those characteristic personality sins that you brought with you from the old life. Sins of the of speaking, sins of action, sins of thinking. Think about those. And think about whether or not they are they are diminished. Now hear me carefully. Are they really diminished? For most of us, they're probably not gone. But are they diminished by the work of the Spirit and progress in sanctification? Are they diminished? But when I say are they diminished, I don't mean are they hidden better. I already know that. See, I already know that you know how to hide your tongue stuff better than you used to. I mean, you're a church person now, after all. I know we get better at how to hide it. That's not what we're talking about. Are you actually better with it? So think about those characteristic sins for you. And then, again next week, we want to look at how we can address those characteristic sins that we learned by nature and by nurture, that we brought into the new life in our own lives and improve in that, truly improve in that. Dear friends, that's, that's getting to the root of what it means to become like Jesus. That's getting to the root of what it means to grow in grace. And It's not just show up at church, talk the lingo, look the part, But rather, in your mind, in your heart, in my mind, and in my heart, I am becoming a different person radically at the root. And that means eradicating. That means taking away those things that I brought into the new life and replacing them with those things that are characterized by the life of God. All right. Let's ask God to help us. Identify that this week. Work on that this week. Think about that this week. And we'll continue next Sunday, Lord willing. Father, thank you that you love us so much that your love is better than unconditional because you refuse to leave us in our condition. You love us as we are, but because of your love, you do not leave us where we were. And you are intent on seeing us become like you. Thank you, Lord God. And you are relentlessly after the hearts of your people calling them back from the deceitful desires that become the idols of our hearts and manifest themselves in the way that we think and talk and act. Lord, I pray that you will help Community Bible Church to be a place where people are real before you and before each other. Help us this to be a place, Lord, where it is safe to be a sinner, but not okay to sin. Because we all recognize that we sin and we struggle and in different ways. Help us this week then to think about the ways that we each struggle. Things that we have carried with us. Grant some of us the courage to ask someone else who's observed our lives. What do you see in me? What characteristic sins do you see in your interactions with me? And having identified those, Lord, we want to use that in order to eradicate that, to kill that, so that it's replaced with Christ's likeness so We ask you to help us to see those things, to talk about those things, to think about those things this week, and help us next Lord's Day to come together to learn of you, to praise you, but then to also apply your truth to these, these struggles that each of us have. Go with us, we ask you, and grant us safety. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.